0: retro hangover is supported via patreon by listeners like you we would especially like to thank patrons lyle mccarnes ashton ruby randall quiggle tony g katie quigg paul ramallo raging demon jc megan caruso masked llama Andrew Liguori, Ozzy Garcia, Keith Gasper, and Mera. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated.
1: Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to episode 109 of Retro Hangover.
0: Welcome to the podcast where we careen cruising caricatures causing creatures crashing considerably cautiously. This is episode 109 of Retro Hangover. I am your co-host, Chris Copeline, with special guest Eric from the Sidequesting Podcast. And as always, your host, Shane. Dick in a Crate Dragon!
1: Ski! There it is. I, I always gotta wait to, for Chris to come back from space. Discord just <laughs> likes to try to cut that out, and it never quite
2: works. I, I figured the audio cue would just be when the green circle comes back on. I'm just I'm gonna wait this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's worth it.
1: It's worth it. The scream has is back in full force. Also, I, I liked the the dick in a box reference. Very nice. Well done. Dick in a crate. Right, a right. Crate. I'm sorry. A crate
0: with apples. Right, are, are or whatever they, it is. I say are they Wumba, are they apples? Something Australian like Wumba fruit or some shit. You know, <laughs> they got to call everything different. Shout out to our Aussie friends. That's right. Drop bears, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh but first of all, I have to welcome Eric here who is res- partially I'm not going to say wholly responsible, but if you want to blame him, Mr. I trying to sleep while listening to the podcast who probably unsubscribed because we brought it back. <laughs> his Eric who is partially responsible for the screaming. Welcome to the show. It
2: is such an honor to have you here. How are you doing, man? Uh, thanks, guys, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And I'll be 100% honest, like the first time I came across your guys' podcast, and I mostly blame Keith for this from Main Quest because he kind of just messaged me and was like, hey, you have a good podcast. And I'm like, no, I don't. But if you want to listen to it, go right ahead. And uh, <laughs> I kind of found him like through you guys. And then first episode I listened to, I don't remember what episode it was on. I heard Chris's screaming dick dragon thing. And I was in my car uh, and immediately turned it off. Cause it almost caused me to like careen over into a curve. like. Into a ditch. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to pass on this show, but I came back to it. And I was like, you know what? This is strangely energizing. And I have loved it ever since. <laughs> I, f-
1: I feel like that is the, that is a, a typical experience with that. It's, it's oh. let's say maybe divisive, but you know, after, after you get past that first, uh, that first shock, you know, it, gr- it grows on you.
2: It, it really does. Like it got stuck in my head and I couldn't keep, I just kept thinking about it like throughout the day and I was like, all right, drive home. Let me try this again. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> See, I hear that. I hear that. And now I'm,
0: I'm torn because we can either sell out and grow our audience by, by not doing it because there's probably other people who are like, I don't like this screaming dick dragon shit. And then there's some people are like, dude, if you don't do this, I'm going to be so upset. (laughs) So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But that, that little bit of info is, uh, I'm torn now. I'm torn. No, no, no. We can't,
1: we cannot listen. If we're going to listen to any YouTube commenters, you know, it should be the don't, the don't waffle guy. Right. So don't, don't, don't waffle back and forth on this decision. You know, we've, we've decided, we gave it a try. We were like, you know what? We're going to, we're going to tone things down. You know, we're, we're we're adults here, you know, we're, we're in our, in our olds. So maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and the feedback was no, no, the Dick dragon must continue. <laughs> so we're just giving the people what they want. Really? Got to
2: give the people what they want. Yeah.
1: And honestly, you know what? Not everybody's going to be happy, you know? So it's okay.
2: You just replace the guy that doesn't like it. Cause he's listening to sleeping with me, the guy that does like it. And, it's like a shot of energy in the morning. So,
1: See? fantastic. There, it is. there you go. I mean, at worst, we're breaking even.
0: I love it. <sighs> in any case, we are talking about
2: a game. And that game what?
0: today is, yeah, I
2: know. I didn't know um, we did that, that game here. Is... I didn't agree That's to not this. Not what I signed up for.
0: Yeah, I
2: wanted. Oh, we, I thought we were... this
1: was true crime.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it involves a dick in a crate and and them trying to find the dick. I feel weird asking you guys if you've had any crime in your area, <laughs> but
2: that's <laughs> a normal question.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, totally. Like, like a couple of years ago we had a shootout because one of the houses in my neighborhood was not only making meth, but was also a brothel. You were part of and that shootout? they Look, I'm not here to talk about the past.
1: <laughs> he can neither confirm nor deny his involvement in the, the,
0: the brothel uh, meth I house. wouldn't want you
2: to self-incriminate yourself, so that's fine.
0: I'm just... That's probably not a brothel I would want to be involved in. I have nothing against brothels, but I'm not going to be in a meth brothel.
2: I just differentiating your business interests.
1: Did you feel that you needed to make sure that you weren't offending <laughs> brothels? <laughs> it's a key demographic. You're like, I just wanted to be clear. I want to go on record as saying that I have nothing against brothels. I do have nothing against brothels.
0: I know some very nice brothels. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Got
2: to make money somehow. Right? Hey, I don't give a shit. Go ahead. Do what you got to do. Respect the hustle.
1: Listen, if if Flash Dancers down the street wants to uh, sponsor us, please let us know. <laughs> Solid gold is more reputable. That's probably
0: true. Yeah. Uh, Wacko's has better food. Um. So before we talk about Wash Bandicoot and apparently strip clubs. Welcome to our strip club review podcast. Fuck. We like to talk about the games we've been playing and what we've been up to. Eric, from the SideQuesting
2: Podcast, how about you start us off this week as our guest? What have you been up to, dude? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, so I actually just yesterday morning finished up Horizon Zero Dawn. I've been playing that for probably like two or three months, way longer than I should have, just between, in, between all the wedding stuff. Uh, and that's pretty good. They say it's one of the better games on PS4, and I, I enjoyed it. I think the lesson of like robots becoming self-aware and killing us all is strangely more relevant today than it was five years ago, especially with all (laughs) like the metaverse stuff going on. True. The Zuckerbots. bots. Exactly. Yeah. That was, I, I said that earlier today, I was like, well, Mark Zuckerberg would make the robots and then they would just kill us all after seeing all the stuff we post on the internet. That would be the main reason why. So, um, so I've been playing that. And then, uh, I normally try to play two games at once. I play like a more modern game and then an older game. And so my older game that I've been playing alongside that is, uh, final fantasy eight and mm. that is my first time playing through final fantasy eight i've played seven and played nine i kind of skipped over eight from that era and uh that's uh that that's interesting uh, i don't know if you guys have done an episode on that i didn't look far back in your catalog but that's a that's really unique sandwich in between there between seven and nine i'm not i'm thinking about disc three According to the save file on my Switch, I'm playing on the Switch. I'm a big fan of the way the junction system works. It's a super unique system that's not really found. Or at least I haven't found in a lot of other RPGs. Uh, and it's just kind of interesting to see, especially because I have a big soft spot in my heart for Final Fantasy IX. It was the biggest or like the, it was the first RPG I ever played. Mm. And so it's interesting to kind of see like I knew seven predated. it. It's just kind of interesting to see eight, the one that predates it. So that's what I've been playing.
0: Mm. Nice. Yeah, Final Fantasy VIII is is a fan favorite of sorts in our discord uh when i say fan favorite that doesn't mean everyone likes it it's just a fan favorite discussion piece
1: yeah i was was gonna say how are what are your feelings on uh ff8 chris it's not a good
0: game ah okay just (laughs) wanted to make sure it's shit all those fucking emo kids and their fucking amnesia demons that fucking give them magic powers and shit okay right but like you're holding back like how do you really feel (laughs) We'll get to that some other day. Okay. I would love to. <laughs> Not really. Cause that means I'd have to play it. Oh, <laughs> at least it's better than 12.
2: Uh, I had a soft spot for 12. I kind of like, it. yeah, unfortunately a lot of people do. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I already see how this, this episode's going to go. <laughs> Eric's just like,
1: uh, you know, I actually really have somewhere to be right now.
2: <laughs> oh, I think, uh, I think someone fell in my house. I better go check in that. <laughs> Uh yeah, my sink's on fire, BRB, sorry. No, I, I mean it's I really like that era, so it's just kind of cool to kind of see them all side by side now and just really kind of see what they were doing. And I should have seen the warning signs because this these were the seven and eight were like the first two Nomura had his hands on. And uh man, mm. should have seen that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> they actually came out on time too. That's a that's another weird one. Yeah, the very weird thing. Again, before
0: Nomura got his hands on them. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, Shane, how about yourself?
1: Man, all right, let me tell you about this game called Vampire Survivors. Mm. Yeah, Uh, I'm not I'm not going to go too in-depth on it because I actually do want to do a rapid fire review for our our patrons, but suffice to say uh, it is a little heavily Castlevania inspired roguelike game um, with uh, pixel art and, and all that jazz uh that was recommended to me in our discord by our uh our lovely patron randall he is uh, our resident pc shill so uh he he recommended this and he was like hey it's this thing that's in early access on steam and also it's like three dollars so somebody should check it out and i was like all right i'll take it for a spin and uh man that game's pretty good it's pretty good, uh especially for being in early access. I have actually been spending way more time with the whole like just one more run mentality uh than I Fuck think yes. I otherwise would have. So
0: Good shit. Like we th- you streamed that on one of our Sunday streams or our most recent Sunday streams as we are recording this. Yes. And it looked it looked interesting. I haven't given it a shot, but apparently the day after you played it it became like the third most stream game on twitch or something like that
1: yeah i mean i like to think that i was the reason for that you are a trendsetter
2: (laughs) i just looked it up because i had read about it but uh it says so yeah 2.99 on steam but it's free in the browser so are you able to actually play it in the browser oh i didn't even know about that
1: i just uh, i immediately spent three dollars on it maybe i should have looked at that first
2: this is just what this random article i looked up said so i was just wondering if you played it in do that
1: <laughs> huh, no, whoever
2: gave you that recommendation should be fired, then shane
1: yeah, we need to talk to our our resident Shill, apparently, he's not doing his due diligence, but
2: uh is three dollars really gonna make or break you though ah, uh, I
1: mean, <laughs> listen, don't bring my financial status into this I'm okay? oh, sorry, I'm sorry no, but <laughs> no, honestly, it's worth way more than three dollars. I'll go ahead and say that it is a fun little game, like if you're into those like run based like hectic, almost sort of like a horde modes sort of a thing. Like I liken it to crimson land. And I've said this a couple of times now with like folks on the discord and on our stream and everything. If you're old enough to know what the hell crimson land was, then you can probably draw some comparisons there, but it's very similar to that. So anyway, go check it out. Cause it's a lot of fun and it's only $3 and it can really only improve from here since it is an early access. So uh good time. Yeah. But uh, what about you, Chris? What, what, have, what's been keeping you busy?
0: Uh, I'm still playing uh, Nobunaga's Ampigskin for the PS2, oh, and nice. I'm greatly enjoying that still playing as Northern Illinois. If you don't know what Nobunaga's Ampig Skin is, you need to listen to the previous two episodes where I talk about this NCAA experience. Uh, other than that, I am playing a game called Bulk Slash for the Sega Saturn. And it's exciting to play this game because it just got a fan translation, I think, released back in late December, early January to the general public. So I was able to put it on my little hard drive on my Saturn uh, of the optical disc emulator and play it. And the great thing about it is that you can beat it in under an hour. And it is just an absolute joy to play. I also intend on doing a rapid fire review of this game, but I mean, I'm already saying it's going to be positive. I'm just going to go into more details. But look, if you have the ability to play Saturn games one way or another, however you may want to do it, it's definitely a game we're checking out. And I do encourage people to play it anyway you can because apparently a this is a Japanese only game. Apparently, a complete in box copy of this game is like $190. Mm. And it's not worth that much, but it is a lot of fun. And I highly recommend you check it out. Awesome. You were way more succinct to me this time. I'm trying to be. <laughs> I don't like I don't like making waffles. I just like eating them. True, man.
1: I don't even remember the last time I had a waffle. I don't. Either. Now I'm just going to think about waffles this whole time. <laughs> I want waffles. Ah, well, well, in any event, um, I don't think it has anything to do with waffles, so I don't even get like a good segue from that. I don't know. People put fruit on waffles sometimes, right? Maybe. Yeah, there you go. There's fruit in this game. There's your segue. (laughs) Fantastic. We're talking about Crash Bandicoot today, in case you didn't know that from the title. We're just going to, you know, spin our way right into uh, the brief history. So, Chris, would you like to tell the fine people about Crash Bandicoot?
0: Gamer, over the age of 30, probably remembers the age of mascot platformers. A mascot almost defined the console or brand they were attached to. Mario, with its family-friendly persona for Nintendo. Sonic, and his awesome-tude for Sega. And Bubsy, and his irritatingness and total incompetence for accolade. Everyone seemed to have something. So it makes sense that people would look to Sony to establish a mascot of their own when they came into the market with the PlayStation in 1995. Sony had largely targeted the late teenager and early adult crowd for its first year with great success. But with the N64 just over the horizon, and the hotly-anticipated Super Mario 64 guaranteed to be a surefire hit, the PlayStation was in need of a figure that could at least attract that demographic over to their side. And thanks to Universal Interactive Studios and upstart developer Naughty Dog, they seemingly found one in Crash Bandicoot. At the 1994 Consumer Electronics Show, Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin, the founders of Naughty Dog, were looking for a publisher of their soon-to-be-well-enough-selling dumpster-fire-of-a-game Way of the Warrior for the 3DO. Fortunately, a few publishers found their talent to be worthy enough to be invested into, and Naughty Dog ended up securing a deal with Universal Interactive to publish Way of the Warrior plus secure funding for three additional games with creative freedom. Noticing the recent trend of arcade favorites transitioning into polygonal 3D landscapes, Naughty Dog initially considered making a traditional beat-em-up incorporating the new graphical capabilities. However, they noticed that the mascot platformer genre still hadn't received a true 3D experience and decided to attempt to be pioneers in the effort. The team would look to many familiar entities for inspiration, At first, they looked to Donkey Kong Country as to how they would want the game to play. After getting a general idea for what they wanted, they saw their initial vision for a 3D platformer constantly being behind the character. This idea of how a 3D game would be played led to the working title of Sonic's Ass Game. Naughty Dog, now with the assistance of Mark Cerny while he was at Universal, then chose to take their idea to Sony's PlayStation. This choice was made due to the other options, like the 3DO, Jaguar, and 32X, just not being viable platforms because they were trash. The Saturn was incredibly difficult to develop for, and Nintendo just didn't have a habit of returning phone calls of Western developers. Plus, Sony just didn't have a mascot yet, so creating one would be a great way to stand out in the crowd. To design the game's mascot, Naughty Dog would look to do what Sega did: take a little regarded cute animal and bring it to life. Since the game was to take place on a group of fictional Australian islands, the team settled down on three animals from the region: the Wombat, Potoroo, pot- you Aussies gotta f- correct me on this, and Bandicoot. The team ultimately chose the Bandicoot as their lovable tiny mammal and named him Crash based off his tendencies to destroy boxes, even though he was commonly referred to as Willy the Wombat for much of development. Crash Bandicoot would originally be shown at E3 in 1996 to great enthusiasm, causing high levels of anticipation. Sony thought so highly of the game that it ended up replacing Twisted Metal at the front of Sony's booth, a move that was certainly meant to attract the more traditional Nintendo crowd. A marketing campaign would capitalize on seizing on that Nintendo base with Sony starting a marketing campaign where a man in a Crash outfit would go to a Nintendo building and harass the company while praising Sony, and Crash leading up to launch. Crash Bandicoot would release for the PlayStation on September 9, 1996 in North America, November 8th in Europe, and December 9th in Japan. Reviews were generally favorable, pointing to the game's graphical fidelity as its strength, with some publications awarding it as their Game of the Month. Others, while still positive on the game, pointed out its inconsistent difficulty and controls, as well as being disappointed in the lack of exploration and poorly placed save points. Regardless of the mixed nature of the reviews, Crash Bandicoot was a smash success commercially, selling almost 3 million units within a year of release and going on to sell almost 7 million units total over the course of its shelf life, the 11th best-selling PlayStation 1 game of all time. Crash will go on to receive two sequels on the PS1, as well as a kart racer before Naughty Dog would turn over the franchise to Traveler's Tales in 2001. As the character was never owned by Sony officially, Crash went on to be on almost every major console after the PS1 era up until 2010, despite losing the reputation of being a quality franchise. However, the durable Bandicoot did not stay down forever, with the original Crash Bandicoot and its two PS1 sequels receiving a remake in 2017 for then-current-gen consoles and a retcon fourth installment in 2020. Currently, Crash Bandicoot will be owned by Microsoft via Activision, leading many to speculate over the future of the franchise. And that is your brief history of Crash Bandicoot.
1: All right. Thank you, Chris, for that brief history. Also, that is one hell of a way to end that with <laughs> talking about that Microsoft acquisition. That that just throws a whole bunch of shit up in the air, man. Crash is not the only one where people are wondering what's going to happen. Let me tell you what.
0: Spyro Candy Crush. You know the important ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Candy crush. I'm, I'm glad you threw that in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are the only games that are really active anymore, anyway. So the big trio
2: of Crash, Candy, and Spyro.
0: That's that's <laughs> their moneymakers. That's their, I can't think of any other Activision or Blizzard property anyone would give a shit about. That's true. That's true, yeah. <laughs> now I'm wondering what the fuck all these boxes on my shelf are. <laughs> you should break them. Like crash. No. There might be fruit inside. They're not crates. <laughs> <laughs> okay so our show's format what we are want to do hey hey there it here is There we go we talk about our personal history with this game i think once again eric i'm gonna let you go first on this one uh as our guest so go
2: ahead let us know what's your personal history with crash bandicoot yeah so i was born in 1991 and uh around this time i pretty much had a super nintendo a, a ps1 and an n64 all kind of at the same time. So the years and like the different generations kind of get fuzzy for me around this time. Everything's kind of like just one homogenized. My brain was potato back then when you're that young. So you, you don't really know. <laughs> but I believe my father probably acquired our Super Nintendo and our PS1 under suspicious circumstances. Uh, because he worked for a company that did like, you know, the, uh, the displays in the store. Where you'd stand at it and play video games where your parents shop. He, he did that. And so one day he came home with a PlayStation, uh, again, probably acquired from said workplace, whether or not legally. Uh, <laughs> I'm not implicating my father on your podcast. That'd be terrible. Don't worry. I'm I'll call the feds. I have friends. <laughs> yeah, right. 30 year old crime. And uh, <laughs> so the PlayStation, uh, I remember it came with this demo disc and on this demo disc was like 30 different games or a bunch. It had Tekken on there. It had Crash Bandicoot 1. It had some rally racing game I don't remember the name of a bunch of different games and I don't know whether or not that was the demo disc that was supposed to be like the in-store like what you would play in store and I'm kind of disappointed that I have it because or I don't have it anymore because it could probably be a collector's item Uh, but that was my first experience with crash and uh, after playing the demo level my young brain thought the rest of the game was on the demo disc so after you'd get through the first level and go to the box counting screen And then it would just stop there. Nothing would happen. So I put the controller down and walk away for like three hours, just hoping that the rest of the game would load, which, of course, it wasn't going to. (laughs) Um, So after seeing how much I liked the game, I got Crash Bandicoot 2 Cortex Strikes Back for, for Christmas or birthday one year and played two before I played one. And then we went back and got one retroactively. Yeah, that was kind of my experience with it. It was really my first foray into like 3D platforming because I never had Super Mario 64 for the Nintendo 64. And so that was really kind of like the first big 3D title that I remember uh, playing it as a video game. And, you know, I enjoyed it at the time. And I don't really have the memories of how difficult that game is. But after having gone, gone back and played it, it's definitely a lot different than I remember it. And so that's kind of my personal history
1: with the game. That's good stuff. Shane? Mine is far less interesting. So I'm glad that you're just sandwiching mine in between the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to me, Crash Bandicoot was always that just really weird PlayStation mascot that I saw on television and knew absolutely nothing about, but seemed like he was just trying like really hard to be cool and, and or like mildly offensive, which I think he achieved. I actually do remember those things of like him going like harassing Nintendo, which at the, I think at the time I found pretty amusing so i guess job well done there i had never actually played the game though before uh you know very recently uh oddly enough my experience with the crash franchise i suppose technically uh started with their very recent mobile offering uh which is like an infinite runner full of the requisite Shisty sort of micro transaction garbage um so i checked that out for all of a couple of days and then uninstalled it but it sure did look real nice so that was i guess my entry point into into crash bandicoot and then going back and, and playing the the first game and being like man um this uh this game does not give a fuck about your feelings but we'll talk about that more in a little bit, but uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much the extent of my experience
2: with it. I forgot they did that mobile game. I totally forgot about that.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's it's
0: still out there. I didn't even know they did one. Good. Good. Um, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so anyone who's listened to the show for a while knows of the infamous three console Christmas. Ah, uh, yes. If you don't know. I'm not going to get into it. You, just ask me in social media. Please whatever. do. I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah. No. So this was one of the games that we got. For the playstation that year and that at the time the playstation was my brother's before i just hijacked it for myself because he didn't play it such a great role model and i decided i was not going to play crash bandicoot because i had super mario 64. and why would you play crash bandicoot if you have super mario 64 that's not just that's and that's not kind of kind of is a preview of how i feel about the (laughs) game but i mean it's super mario 64 this is the the grand evolution this is everything everyone was waiting for from super nintendo and then you had crash bandicoot which i had never heard of and i wasn't anticipating or anything so of course i'm going to gravitate towards super mario 64. every once in a while i would try and play it but it never really held my attention for too long i just wanted to get to back to my n64 and then shortly after that it was focused on resident evil uh, my brother apparently didn't care much for it either because he would always be playing Power Rangers Turbo or Zeo Pinball for the PlayStation, which is actually a decent pinball game. Not not a great one. It's just decent. Never really got to it, but always kind of tried to go back because Crash Bandicoot 2 and 3 are supposed to be really, really good. And I've, I have played them and they are very good games. So I'd always try to start with one because that's how my mind works is you always start at the first one and try to go to the other two. And it just it just never jived with me. and this. Isn't something that I haven't done over the years. I've always tried to go back and play Crash Bandicoot the first one. and it's just something always just just rubs me the wrong way. So this for this episode was the first time I've actually sat down and played through the game in its entirety. So I, I think I can formulate the reasons I felt the way I did back then. And maybe I've changed my mind in some things. but uh, we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> will, will we? I feel like you kind of just,
1: probably. I mean, we could probably just wrap this up right now. I feel like you kind of just got it right out there. Ah, uh, well, I'm sorry. You gonna throw us a curveball. Is that what's going to happen?
0: I might. I might throw a curveball. Are you going to shamalan on this? I don't know yet, but okay. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there when we get to the final thoughts.
2: Okay.
1: See, this is how we do things, people. We don't even know what's going to happen.
0: He's
2: leaving it open-ended in case something crazy happens. Yeah. You're establishing a nice plot twist
0: and nice story elements, just like a good story. Speaking (laughs) of good stories, I feel like a segue is coming. (laughs) Speaking of stories, Shane, what what did you think of this game's story? Because, man, I I have a feeling you have some deep, deep, long, hard, (laughs) rock solid thoughts on these. I sure do,
1: Chris. Man, the power of boners is strong. That's the (laughs) message of
2: this game. Speaking of rock solid.
1: i mean you know what i'm sure the two of you might get into the more uh n- nuanced parts of the plot such as they are but suffice to say you know the 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 nefarious dr Neo Cortex is out there doing some weird genetic experiments on some animals and uh one of them happens to be a bandicoot who uh goes goes kooky and is also like hey that other animal that you were experimenting uh experimenting on uh looks uh pretty attractive. I'm I'm gonna go rescue her because boners. And that's that's the that's the plot. There you go, everybody. You're welcome.
0: So an interesting thing about this plot yes. is the, the female bandicoot, her name is Tana. Mm-hmm. Apparently she's not in any other Crash Bandicoot games because one of the members, the mark, one of the, someone from the marketing department at either Sony or Universal, thought her design was too sexist and did not want her in any other games because she was just, you know, designed with like this this male gaze of just being a very hot anthropomorphic Tucker Carlson loving, <laughs> design. Wow. She, well, okay, maybe not. She's not Eminem. So they got rid of her, and also because they wanted to introduce a more younger character, uh, to a company. Uh, crash for the japanese market which you know no comment there it is crash's sister so you naughty naughty people just no oh no step bandicoot what are you doing
2: (laughs) no no there's a reason it's called naughty dog (laughs) yes you can say it's raw
0: i i will not look at this game And essentially, this game, when you really, really break it down, yes, there is the boner energy of Crash wanting to go and bang this female bandicoot, uh, but essentially it is it's Sonic the Hedgehog, except Sonic wants to bang Amy instead of run away from her all the time. (laughs) I just feel like there's plenty of fanfic that already covers that. Oh, there's no doubt. Rule 34 is well into effect when it comes to (laughs) Sonic. I mean, I think the comics are already rule 34 in some elements of in and of themselves But when it comes to uh, this game, yeah, I mean, Dr. Neocortex is the enemy and he transforms a bunch of animals to uh, essentially like world domination or some shit. And Crash Bandicoot, Crash, is one of those animals that was, you know, morphed. So he just not has always been he's not naturally been this anthropomorphic bandicoot guy wearing pants. A little bit different than Sonic because Sonic was always Sonic Uh, is just now that. Crash Bandicoot is one of the morph people, and yeah, he has to go destroy an evil doctor who's trying to change animals for its own nefarious purposes. So, yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog with sexual tension, which, hey, whatever, it doesn't matter because. <laughs> <laughs> which is
1: just Sonic.
0: Yeah, it, it just, it's just, it's a platformer. They don't go into exposition. Nothing is really told. They introduce characters that don't really matter, just like in any mascot action platformer that they kindly have stuff in the manual that describes. But as you're playing the game, There is no real relevance to it. I don't know. I I don't care. It's funny, though. I I will say
2: that you can make jokes for days. So, Eric, what's your what's your thoughts? I I don't have so much thoughts as I do questions about just the (laughs) plot in general. Okay. so, like, first of all, like, Dr. Cortex seems like a pretty smart guy, right? He invents this technology that can give animals intelligence and sentient consciousness. Ooh. And he just decides to, like, use it in this manner. And not only decides to use it in this manner, but also, for some reason, put a lot of work into making Crash's girlfriend, like, this tall Barbie-proportioned creature, which is kind of weird. So, in my ranking of, like, video game evil doctors, like, Dr. Cortex, like, definitely <laughs> probably towards the bottom, bottom of the list. The story, I mean... I can't nitpick it too much, right? Because it is what it is and it gets us this game. But again, that's a really impressive that if, if that was invented today, I was just thinking if that technology was like invented today, right? Like that would be a really, really impressive invention. It'd be like, oh my God, we can make lions like stand upright and talk and think and like consciously decide to eat us instead of instinctually. (laughs) So,
1: um, I mean, I just feel like maybe you're giving the human race way more credit uh with that assessment because tell me that one of the first things that someone is going to think of when we you know get this technology is not all right so now i can fuck one of
2: these <laughs> that's going to be one of the first things probably i mean li- <laughs> okay. that's literally what, one of the first things he did was make tana bandicoot christ's right, girlfriend right that's what i'm saying i mean that's the first thing that would happen and then they'd all decide to kill us so not a robot uprising it's an animal uprising so and then out of everything you're going to decide to make an ar- army out of it's like australian animals i mean well i guess that makes sense because australia is like the most dangerous place on earth so true i, mean, I guess if you're going to pick an animals to make an animal army might as well be australia hey it is what it is and then for reasons he runs around falls out of the castle and then yeah you got to go to Tana. so i mean it's, it's pretty basic as far as stories go it's essentially mario rescuing peach except you're rescuing a female bandicoot that makes people uncomfortable about their sexuality i'm guessing because that's yeah. why they removed it so
0: yeah i guess so i do have to ask this question because i think you brought up a, a very good point here for our furry listeners i have to ask is dr neocortex what happens when you get when you're super smart you get rejected by the furry community <laughs> let, let us know i think you might need to be on the lookout for a neocortex amongst you. Mm. Be very careful. It was a warning. I'm, I'm sure we'll hear about this in the discord later. So thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> Probably. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad. I mean, nothing negative. I just, <laughs> just want to make a discussion. Point. Yeah, it's just it's a legitimate question, you know, it is also a legitimate question is. Uh, how does this game play? God, you're, you're just getting so good at those. Man, I'm so hot with this. I'll start off this one. Oh boy, it seems like something that if if Mario sixty four had not existed, I could see the argument of this game, and it did come out before Mario sixty four North America. Not overall, it came out after Mario sixty four, uh, because Mario came out in Japan first for the N sixty four, but. Had you had not played Mario, I could understand the perception that this game is totally revolutionary in the terms of mascot platformers. Uh, There, there wasn't a lot of these for the PlayStation at the time. I know there was Jumping Flash or Rabbit Montu or whatever you want to call it that came out earlier. It came out before,
1: which is, by the way, just its own bag of crazy that somebody thought that doing a first-person platforming thing as a rabbit was a, a good idea. And what's even crazier is that, like. It actually kind of worked okay. Yeah. Like I, I didn't, I didn't hate did. playing that game. I'm going to be honest.
0: And then there was also a game called floating runner by THQ. And I would have to look when that game came out, it plays like an early, I would call it a platformer though. It's more, it's more of a like twin stick shooter kind of, but that game almost made me vomit. So I don't really want to put that in the same category. <laughs> so, I mean, crash bandicoot. It, it did a lot of things. Right. For 1996, especially if you'd look at it as its own singular entity. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people did. And this is a reason that this game is so finely remembered is because if you go back to 1996 and you had a PlayStation and you did not have an N64, you were not playing Mario 64. All you had was Crash Bandicoot. So if this is your foray into 3D platforming, it's not the worst first example. That being said, there's there's a lot of issues as as many virgin voyages have and no that's that's not sexual i have to point some things out here uh some of the levels in terms of like the first level the first one you do is very well designed i think it does a very good job of introducing you to the core concepts of uh what to do in terms of how to break boxes how to defeat enemies how to navigate your way through the level especially from the third person over the shoulder perspective it's it's all well and good. The thing is, is that as the levels get more complex, so does the absurdity of what Crash Bandicoot delivers in, in, in terms of how not good it can be in terms of there are a lot of leaps of faith. There's a, a hit detection is inconsistent. Uh, the way the levels are designed ex- expects you to kind of break the rules that it doesn't train you on how to do that. You just kind of naturally have to learn it. Plus the expectation that you're supposed to break all the boxes when it's not 100% clear how you're necessarily supposed to do that. And if you die at any point, it completely resets your progress. So there's a, there's a lot of things that are just utterly frustrating with the experience, especially the further and further you get into the game, which you know is excusable to a point because in platformers, levels are more difficult the further and further you get into the game. That is the expectation. But sometimes it's just like there is nowhere for me to go uh, or the rules aren't quite established in terms of how I'm supposed to kill an enemy, all these kind of things. And it, it kind of makes me feel all, or, all sorts of ways uh, about uh, where I am on it that I'm, I'm still not entirely sure if I like it, because when you're jumping from platform to platform, sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't, especially when it wants you to go in and out of the game in terms of depth or it switches between you know what I mean is like sometimes it has 2d platforms and sometimes you, it has you moving vertically like uh, uh, up and down the screen as well which yeah it's it's 3d it's supposed to do that but I don't think it makes that transition very well and I know I'm starting to ramble and I'll let someone else take it so Eric uh, how about you continue on here
2: yeah so I, I do agree with a lot of your points and and this was my first foray into 3d gaming was this was this in crash 2 um but Like you said, when you stack this aside Mario 64 and just at the time, like Mario 64's control scheme was so precise, uh, a lot of those issues really do start to come to the forefront, uh, especially in the later levels. And I found myself having a hard time judging a lot of those leaps of faith, judging the distance, especially when it was like a really, really dark level, like a temple level or like a really bright level, like the road to nowhere, where it's just a bridge that you're running on. Uh, I did experience a lot a lot of that and especially with the hitbox detection too and i don't know if you guys experience this but i find that if i was like trying to make a jump and i was hitting like the edge i would just kind of like slide off if i didn't fully land on the platform i found myself yeah mm-hmm. yeah more often uh than not but on the flip side like you said that first level is really well designed and especially kind of in the vertical sections when you get a good rhythm going uh the platforming can be fun but like you said, in the later levels, you don't really have that rhythm just because there's so much like, shipping thrown at you and you're trying to avoid stuff and you're having to jump in and out. And then an uh, element of the gameplay I wanted to touch on too was the bosses. This game is difficult, but the bosses to me are just like an absolute joke. Like, yes. Basically, like, in, three hits, and then you're out. Like They don't really match with the rest of the difficulty of the game. I don't really know. It's just kind of like you should have bosses that kind of match that and it's just really like, Oh, the bosses do a repeating pattern and you jump on them like Papu Papu just swings this thing around. You just jump on him three times and you kill him. Pinstripe Potaru Potaru, however you say that. I apologize to Australian listeners. (laughs) Uh, He literally just shoots his gun. You hide behind a chair and you just wait for him to be done. Then you just go up and hit him. So that's not really, I think, a fitting boss experience. I think they did better with the bosses later in the series, but this first game, they're just way too easy. Even the final boss, Cortex, is... Relatively, like, not that difficult. Certainly, one of the easier bosses, agree. Yeah. It, it's it's certainly not worth completing the game 100% just to like bypass him, like you can do when you get all the gems. To, it, it's just easier to just beat him. And especially <laughs> uh, getting the gems and trying to 100% this game is just not worth it. The reward is not worth the effort you put in. It's difficult, especially with the way saves work. And if you die, the boxes respond behind you, and you have to break every single box in the level. To get the gem. And it's just—it's not, it's not really worth it. Uh, I, I saw that you wrote that. It's just better to play this game. And not try to 100% it. You'll have more, a better time. And I agree with that. Uh, all that being said. Super simple control scheme. All it is is pretty much move, jump and spin. Not a lot to think about. There's a good experience in here. But it's, it, it, it's really mixed. From level to level. And just kind of from challenge to challenge.
1: That's fair. Shane. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and jump in, hopefully without echoing too much of what you both have already said. Uh, so one thing that I did want to just make a note on, because I think this might have something to do with it. It was interesting that I found while looking through some information about this prior to the episode as well, that um, you were talking about how the the boss encounters seem to be like strangely, you know, like undertuned um, comparatively to the rest of the game experience. and. I would venture a guess to say that maybe part of that was because the bosses were kind of designed with a different purpose in mind first. And then I think the encounter like design was like sort of came after the fact, like because a lot of what the team at Naughty Dog uh, were doing with this was, you know, really for the first time, the the boss designs and stuff sort of were part of that same philosophy where you know specific ones like for example like Ripper Roo right they had said that the reason or one of the big reasons that they designed him the way that they did was to like give them an opportunity like for their animators to practice like overlapping action like in a sequence or like Papu Papu was designed to allow them to get good at animating like jiggling fat on a character like shit like that so it was a lot more functional i think in that way very utilitarian and i almost feel like They did that and, like, designed a character around, like, what can we do to, you know, work on our technical acumen with this tool set and then just sort of, like, figured out what to do with the encounter
0: afterwards. I could completely understand that. It's just the bosses do seem tacked on. So that's completely understandable that all the bosses were just kind of internal tech demos to see the limits of what they could do. And then, like... I know we're kind of, this is kind of a foreshadow into the graphics, but you do look what they can do. And it was very impressive, especially sure. if you go into the details in, in terms of how they unlocked a lot of the game and how they ex- took advantage of the hardware and how they essentially hacked the PlayStation or to make this game work, mm. which uh, there's a video on Ars Technica with Andy Gavin, where he discusses how they made the game better and they weren't supposed to. <laughs> and so there's a lot of effort here. Well, yeah, I mean, Sony didn't want them to make the game better in the way they did. But the bosses definitely feel tacked on. They don't feel like there's a lot of thought to them. And I, I really did like the boss. Honestly, the one where you have to jump on the dynamite and uh, explode it near them because it did require some pattern recognition. What they did. What what boss was that? That was Ripper Roo, right? Ripper Roo? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hops around and the crates, come down the waterfall. Yes. I'd like that boss fight. I, I did think they were thinking outside the crate on that one. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> In terms of. How to how to do a boss fight in a 3D environment. And you do you do have to remember, like, even if Mario 64 did come out before this game, they weren't playing it for inspiration. They were just trying to create something that aligned with what they wanted to do. And when you're thinking about taking a 2D game and putting it into a 3D environment, you're you're going to make a lot of good decisions and you're also going to make a lot of bad decisions. When you look at the games that are horizontal, I I think those are a lot of the games best moments especially in terms of getting into a rhythm of platforming because you mentioned the bridge level eric and fuck that level like Agreed. fuck it to hell just fuck that naughty raw dog to hell <laughs> i guess there a, is a way to cheese it you can jump on the ropes and just run up it but even that's not consistent because you said sometimes you can jump on the ropes and then you just slide off of it not to mention, sometimes when you're using the D-pad, it, for some reason, maybe it's just my controller, maybe it's not aligned right. I, I had to keep on going back on my controllers until I got to, like, original PlayStation non-analog controller to get the best kind of control. I just, maybe that's just me. Like, sometimes I'd press the direction, and because of the depth, Crash would go up or down and misalign himself on whatever plane he was on, especially in the save. the save bonus levels and we'll fucking get to those fucking (laughs) motherfuckers where i would be trying to make my way across these things and then i'd be breaking boxes in those levels and all of a sudden crash would supposed to land it looked like he was going to land right on a crate on my way to the save box and he'd fall off the map he'd fucking fall off the map because he went into the environment to the point where he was now off the crate which why do you include that by the way when there's only one line of fucking boxes there's only one line it's
1: a three dimensional experience Chris (laughs) it's revolutionary
0: why why I'm not (laughs) I'm not pressing that direction on purpose it's not
2: happening revolutionary and pissing Chris off no that's normal
0: (laughs) fuck
1: so I mean on that note I do want to just put it out there that, you know, I I absolutely give the team at Naughty Dog a a pretty fucking generous amount of slack for, you know, some of these things, given that this game was in that super like awkward, you know, transitory period between 2D and 3D. Again, as you mentioned, it, it might be kind of tough to give them a lot of that when Mario 64 came out in the same exact year. But Also, like you mentioned, it's not like they were, you know, using it for inspiration or anything. I want to say that for the most part, I thought the controls were actually pretty, pretty good, pretty tight. The controls specifically with some of the things as far as like landing on platforms that can get a little slippery, as Eric mentioned. And that definitely happened to me a number of times. But controlling crash for the most part felt pretty good. Having said that most of my difficulty and it sounds like Chris had the same problem was that attempt at platforming in a three dimensional space, uh, specifically misjudging depth on jumps. Um, when the game forces you and I think the temple levels were the most egregious offenders here, Yeah, forcing you to jump towards the screen. Uh, just, you know what? It's It was Wild West, right? N- new Frontier. Um. Hopefully we learned that that's bad game design, because C- it is. It's incredibly frustrating to try to judge the depth of a jump onto what is often a moving platform as well, I might add, while trying to jump towards the camera in a third-person perspective. That is just unfair, especially in a game Where you have, you know, a save mechanic that requires you to complete a bonus level without falling off the edge of the earth to even, you know, be graced with the ability to save your progress, which I would like to know which insane person thought that that was an intelligent move because I have never in my life seen another game with that kind of hoop you need to jump through just to save. That is a whole other level of just banana pants. Crazy.
0: Yeah. There's no excuse for that. No. Like there's, there's not even, well, this was that we were just trying new things. Look, they had been, a st- you played Donkey Kong country. <laughs> you played Sonic three. You knew how this, this was supposed to be done. It's not hard. Pick a memory card. I understand those are new. Okay, fine. Memory cards are new. Not really, because the Sega CD had them and the TurboGrafx CD had them and the 3D. Uh, and, OK, look, you knew what you were supposed to do and you didn't do it. And even like when you do go to these save levels on some of them, if you go to the save levels and you save your game and then you die and you load your file up, you can just go to the next level. <laughs> you don't even have to beat the level because it's, it's so jank. Like it's it's uh, it's, it's bad. It's, I know I'm bitching too much about the fucking save feature, but it's, it's well, fucking okay. legit stupid. It is. And
1: it also would have been, it would have been something that I think I would have taken far much more umbrage with if I had not been playing this on, you know, an emulator where I could just create save states because otherwise I, well, just full disclosure, I don't think I would have gotten through this entire game without save states. I I would have rage quit like way before that I ever got to the end. I'm just going to be totally honest there. The difficulty can
0: be pretty almost unfairly punishing at times. I do want to talk about that.
2: But Eric, I'll let you. What did you think about the difficulty? And then I'll get into it just to touch on the save thing, too. It's like I, I can't imagine that anybody at Naughty Dog didn't raise that and was like, hey, like maybe this isn't such a good idea because like you said, memory cards are, are kind of a thing now. And I specifically remember like having other games where you had the ability to like save or the journey to be able to save was not as arduous and you could load <laughs> it up on your memory card. So, yeah, that that decision is just very bad. Difficulty. Yeah, I felt like it definitely spiked in certain places. Like this game is notorious for certain levels. And like you like, you know, those levels, like I said, first was Road to Nowhere, which is the bridge level. Yeah. Slippery Climb is infamous in this game for just being a just a difficult motherfucker, man. (laughs) Which one is that? Uh, that's like the castle one where it's like raining. You're jumping up the side of it. OK. And even in when I played the, the HD trilogy, like the crash, the HD remaster remake, that level is still difficult. Yeah. At times, controls are super tight. But of all the crashes, this is certainly the most difficult. I would say like two is the middle difficulty. Three is by far the easiest. This one is. They, they, You could tell they were definitely figuring things out because the problems I have in this game definitely improve once you move to two and to three, uh, especially three. I feel like three and they definitely just had a better time of balancing the difficulty and the level design.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that and that's the thing, right? It's like there, there are so many things about this game that were f- firsts in a lot of in a lot of regards. And so. Again, like I said, I'm trying to trying to think of it in terms of 1996, right? Um, Not in 2022 game design sensibilities um, where it's really easy to necessarily just like shit on a lot of this stuff. You know, you have to think about what they were trying to tackle here, but the level design in a lot of places is is pretty, pretty rough to the point where it just really comes down to pure trial and error which never feels good to a player like ever. No, no. But I think, I think the the devs like recognize this, right? Because I, I, I could not get this out of my head that as I was going along, just the, the bounty of extra lives that they foist upon you in this game. And I'm just like, okay, they, they knew they knew they're like, this is like their in game apology of like, okay, yeah, we know this is like, Really rough. Um, so we're just gonna give you like 80 lives and just 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 keep just keep plugging away, please. Thank you. So yeah, man, I don't know. It just it just doesn't, and that's the thing, is that what a lot of this comes down to is like though the controls themselves are pretty tight, especially on those 2D um sort of like well, <laughs> mostly 2D horizontal levels, that part feels good, but the rest of it really doesn't and it's sometimes it's hard to quantify but i've said this before on other podcasts where like a a lot of what can make or break a game is how you how it makes you feel how it feels to be experiencing it and i think it's a hard sell on this one for a lot of these like mechanical shortcomings perhaps Um, that we've that we've been talking about now having said that i did just want to point out real quick that i do agree with chris that one of the things i actually really appreciated about the game was the fact that they did sort of vary the presentation style between levels i thought it was very refreshing i really don't think that i could have taken an entire game of run away from the camera down a hallway yeah ass cam for like eight hours i don't think i could have done that so I'm glad mm-hmm. that they kind of
2: switched it up a little bit. On the level design too, this is kind of one thing I appreciated is that like on the first island, you notice you start off, it's very like jungle and like the native villages and stuff like that. And it's like the closer you get to Cortex's castle, it becomes more of like mysterious ruins and castles. And eventually like once you get to the island that Cortex's castle is on, it becomes like science and industry. And uh, I kind of appreciate mm-hmm. that level progression as you get like closer to your end goal. Mm-hmm. and one other thing too I wanted to ask you guys about since we're talking about like the different horizontal and vertical sections and you brought it up about jumping towards the camera and the temple levels how'd you guys feel about the like boulder sections where you had to run away from the boulders or like the pig sections where you were riding the pig
1: okay I'll go right the fuck ahead right now Awesome. awesome. Um, <laughs> okay. I initially hated the shit out of those boulder levels but strangely I actually came to enjoy them I thought I was going to straight up hate them Mm -hmm. but that was actually the one spot. Now that you've mentioned this, I'm actually really glad you brought this up. That was the one spot where I felt I got into a really, really good platforming rhythm. All of those platforms were placed exactly where they needed to be so that you could just get in this really awesome groove of just jump one, jump to the next, jump to the next. And it, it actually felt really good. And most of those sorts of levels where you're like, running towards the camera and trying to escape something like that tend to really suck. But I actually really enjoyed those. Now the boar ones, however, I hated those immensely.
0: (laughs) There's only one boar one.
1: Well, I hated it. Chris is what I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, it should have been real neat to like ride a wild boar, but the way that that level was structured, there was some real, just like cheap shot shit in there that I did not appreciate. Especially
2: when you're trying to hit all the crates in that level, too. If you're trying to go for 100%, that's... Just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't. Just don't. I do want to say this about the difficulty though, and again, I'm not... I didn't try to 100% this
0: game, so I'm not trying to flex. So if you guys feel like I'm flexing here, well, Shane, you have Dark Souls, so it's fine. <laughs> that's true. I didn't find this game to be particularly difficult. I think there's only two levels that, that frustrated me. One of the bridge level, as I said earlier, and the second one was the lab, which is like the very last actual full level Mm -hmm. other than that i thought the game was tough but fair and yes there is some memorization so if you don't want memorization that's fine but you go back to what i thought about ghouls and ghosts for the genesis you go back a little bit look some of these games were this is an era of where games were designed to have that element to them and if you are used to that kind of platforming experience and even mario would do this in some of his most heralded 2d experiences where there is some memorization. People love Mega Man, and Mega Man's all about trial and error. It's, that essentially is trial and error, the fucking game. And I, I do love Mega Man. So when I look at a game like Crash Bandicoot, which does award you ton of, tons of lives and does give you a pretty quick respawn area to do that, unless you're going for 100%, which again, don't. You can do some trial and error stuff and progress and, and learn from your mistakes and know what you're supposed to do pretty easily, in my opinion. That the game, yes, there are, it does get frustrating, but when I died a lot of the times, it's because I felt like I didn't learn my lesson, I wasn't paying attention, or I, I just didn't execute the way I, I knew I was supposed to. It was definitely my fault. And I, I do give a lot of credit to Crash Bandicoot on that aspect is when you realize there is a rhythm to be had and you take advantage of that rhythm, the game rewards you for knowing what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to. Do. Do it now. It, it does take some platforming chops in order to do that. I'm not saying you guys don't have that, but what I'm saying is is that it is present and it is there, and you can get into a rhythm. And I agree with Shane with the Boulder levels. They are they are fantastic. Uh, I I do love them because again, it forces you to get into a rhythm. Whereas the other stages, the rhythm is more uh stymied. It's it's very it starts and stops, and you it it it's not a natural flow, even though there is a flow to it. But um, I didn't find the game that difficult for those reasons. I just kind of put my put that perspective in there especially because I knew if
2: I died I'd have to go back to my previous safe spot and that was not an option. And they do give you <laughs> like you said the glut of lives. I wonder if that's a component of the trial and error thing where they're like, well, we know you're going to have to try and figure it out. So, here's enough lives to be able to do that and not be frustrated. Because yeah, like you said, I it's it's difficult, but if you I mean, if you just if you play it, you'll learn it and if you learn it, you'll beat it. So, and I especially feel the same way about the boulder sections too. I was just wondering if I was the only person that experienced that or not. Running towards the camera boulder section felt great. Jumping towards the camera in the temples sucked. Mm-hmm. Sucked really bad. Yep. Yeah. 100%. I will say that. Yeah. There's a lot of mismomentum. momentum. Now, talking about
0: what feels great, maybe, maybe things look great. Oh, in terms of the graphics. Mm. So, what did, what did you all think of the graphics? And Eric, I'll let you
2: start this one. How, how do you think this game looks? I think for the time, it still holds up pretty well. Uh, I was never questioning what I was looking at. Everything was pretty clearly defined and easy to understand. I really appreciate the decision to make Crash this bright orange color just because I never felt like he was difficult to see against all the different kind of backgrounds they had, whether it was dark out, light out, whether you were against like a native village or in a lab. Uh, He was very able to be seen in his physical space. Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of felt the same way about the levels. It was, except for some of the more, like, abyssy type levels, uh, everything was very well defined, which areas were in and out of bounds. Yeah, I think the game, it it really is a testament to that time. And I think it still looks pretty good today.
0: Mm.
2: One fun thing I found out when researching the graphics is that they uh, gave Crash no neck to save on polygons, so they didn't have to use as many polygons in the game. So that is the (laughs) reason he has no neck. And it's better. I think it's better for it. Way I, he better would for it. You'd look weird with a neck. So I'm glad Torc Cortex took that out. It's kind of disturbing, but. <laughs> well, necks aren't
0: hot. It doesn't make them rock hard. <laughs> no, no, it does not. <laughs> Only on female
2: bandicoots. <laughs> um, but I thought the whole presentation, and uh, like I said earlier, too, and that might be a thing in the graphics, too, is the way the levels shifted from this jungle and tribal setting to this more like castle industrial setting as you go along. I, I really like the, uh, the art direction for that.
0: I I would tend to agree with you. In fact, I'm not just saying if you look back at it, it it holds up. There's appreciation for it. I think it just holds up in general. I think it still looks like a really good game, especially when you consider how and and you kind of alluded to this too. how early in the PlayStation's life this was that it still looks good today. I think it's because it's bright and colorful and cartoony, which is, of course, what they were going for. But the way they designed the levels, the way it loaded up. And again, I, I, I advise you go look at the Ars Technica video on, on YouTube to see how they did that and how they had the screen refresh. But I think there's there's a, there's some simplicity to it, especially in the later levels in the industrious and uh, castle like levels that you go into is you have a lot of empty space. But the main path is very well detailed and designed. And again, colorful. Uh, and you look back at games, the games that try to be more realistic. Do not hold up. And these games like Crash Bandicoot that went into the more fantasy element and, and went to more cartoon element, they still have an amazing charm to them. Like Crash Bandicoot's charm is one of the things that also did keep me playing. It's just that it's it's never it's always silly. There's always a there's always an atmosphere of fun, like even through the graphics. Like Crash looks so good and he always looks goofy. And those those expressions that you get from him, especially in the opening scene, which also looks great. It's like, wow, okay, we really are in the next generation of mascot platformers, especially in an era when it could have been so, so, so much worse. I, I got to tip my hat off in the graphics department on the, on the visuals. So I have absolutely zero issues with how this game looks. Yes, the Insane Trilogy looks a lot better. It should. But if you have a soft spot in your heart for, for graphics of this era, which we do shit on quite a bit, on this podcast, I'm going to say this game is, is exempt from that shitting. It is not a German chest, Shane. Wow. Thanks for handing it off on that note.
1: <laughs> I have to agree. And, and to be fair, I think a lot of the criticism that we have for early polygonal titles is valid because they just don't they just don't age well at all. I mean, I've said it time and again that I think most n64 games look like mud at this point and but this one this one holds up and i think this 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 particular aspect of crash bandicoot for all of the things and all of the reservations that i have about some of the other you know things that went into this game um a lot of like the mechanics as we were just talking about I, i think the graphical presentation and the technical acumen that went into making this happen is worthy of praise. It really, really is. There is a staggering amount of work that the team did to get this game to run as smoothly as it does, to look as good as it does, and to be as you know readily identifiable as it is. I could go through this whole list, but as Chris said, there's that really great Ars Technica video about that, that, you know, they talk directly with them. So I would just go check that out if I were you, but, you know, suffice to say, like these guys were sitting there writing their own homebrew programs to, you know, compress textures and you know doing different types of character rigging in order to make the characters more expressive you know they were doing vertex animation instead of the more traditional like skeletal animation that a lot of other games were trying to do with uh, three-dimensional models and as a result of that you get things like crash's face you know being so emotive um, when a lot of other characters simply were not like that uh, and it's actually so important that it's one of the things that. You know, one of the team members, Jason Rubin, points out specifically as that opening sequence when Crash like kind of, you know, plucks his face out of the the sand and shakes it off and looks all derpy. That basically sold him as a character because like no other 2D game could really do that and no other three dimensional game in the time could pull off those sort of animations. And we look at it now and we're just like, okay, yeah, I mean, he's a goofy bandicoot and it looks okay, I guess. But I really, really wanted to make sure that this was pointed out for those of you who are listening, because I think that Naughty Dog and all of those folks that worked on this deserve all of the credit for making this game work as well as it does.
2: I think you brought up a great point, too, because uh, like you brought up the the new in insane trilogy and I've played you know the original trilogy plus CTR and the remakes as well and this is still the way that I see Crash in my brain is from this PS1 era just because the graphics and his design were so well like I just think that it's the same thing with Spyro too I just Mm -hmm. I think it was so well done and like you said there are games from this era and from even later eras that they're character even when voice acting became a thing that the faces are not nearly expressive there are games that come out today that the faces are not as expressive as crash bandicoot is from the ps1 true and that in itself is an incredible technical achievement and really just kind of hammers home his, his personality it's really the selling point like like you said when you start up the game he's just there's a the start menu and he's just looking kind of back and forth looking left and right like making weird eyebrow expressions and at the time that was really, really impressive. And like, like I said, I've played some terrible RPGs from the 2010s and <laughs> uh, games from the late 2010s <laughs> that the faces just look dead, mm-hmm. and people look yeah. like <laughs> the mocap's terrible or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you touched on. It's a first-year PlayStation. Game. Yes, and it looks—it
0: does not look like it. You could look at this and think that Crash Bandicoot. View nothing about Crash Bandicoot. You could think this was a late PlayStation game, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you in the, in the slightest. Not at all. And the other two games look even better. And that all sounds good. Oh. But what we can really talk about is the sound. Oh. Instead of just saying things sound good. So so it's Shane. <laughs> yeah. How about you talk about the sound design in this game?
1: Uh, sure. I I dig it, man. Like I think the soundtrack is, is supremely appropriate for what you've got going on. It's like that very irreverent, you know, uh, flavor that it's got uh, matches our 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 protagonist quite well. An interesting tidbit about that is that they originally wanted to go with something that they had referred to as urban chaos for a lot of the music. <laughs>
2: chaos chaos
1: which would have been like random sampling of like car horns and like fart noises and uh must kill chaos (laughs) and fortunately they they shot that one down so we can thank them for that one i guess um the other interesting thing that i i i personally found really cool um just because like i don't know about anybody else but When I was growing up, I ended up watching like a lot of Rugrats on Nickelodeon. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mark Mothersbaugh was the one that did like the music for Rugrats. Super, super iconic. Right. And he was sort of tangentially involved with this game, mostly via his company at the time. It's called Mutato Musica and i think it really really shows because it's it's the same sort of style here like 100% it's like as it was like as if the the rugrats took a vacation to to the amazon like that's what this soundtrack is and for the record he actually just straight up did the music for crash 2 you know for whatever it's worth that's cool but yeah but i really liked it man like i i i i enjoyed it and as far as like the sound design goes There wasn't really anything that I could think of that I would, you know, complain about. Usually there's some things that we can point out as just being like, yeah, I really didn't like that particular sound effect or this didn't fit or whatever. But I think everything was pretty much on point.
0: I'm just going to have to say it for me. It was just meh. It's not bad. It's atmospheric. It fits the environment. I I do like it when you get the third mask character. Was it Paku Paku? Uh, Aku Aku. Aku Aku. aku, Aku Aku. But like when you get the third mask and you get the, the really fast bongo music and you're, you're running through enemies and you're invincible, I thought that was good. But for the most part, I, I, like nothing here to me really stuck out. I'm not playing any of these songs on my way to work when I'm commuting in the morning. That's that's not happening. It does fit with the game. I'm not going to say it doesn't. And it does a good job of doing that. But I'm not going to say it's outstanding. And that's same with the sound design itself. It, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It accomplishes what it does so i guess in a sense it's good because it does what it's supposed to but i don't think it's any sort of monument of achievement like the graphics were so i'm just gonna say it's it's meh for me it's average it's just it's there because it needs to be there and it's not offensive so eh, hats off to it in that aspect that they accomplished not
2: me ripping on it but it's (laughs) eh, it's there how about you eric First of all, maybe you should listen to a little bit of on your commute to work, because maybe your commute to work would be more zany then. I, I, yeah. I don't know.
1: Oh! There you
2: go. No, I don't want that. you <laughs> Yeah, commuting is already stressful enough. So, first of yes. all, I just want to shout out uh, the bongo drums player. He went hard on this soundtrack. He's just going, especially <laughs> I like you said, the Aku Aku theme. He was going nuts. And, and then the, the xylophone player, too, or the steel drum, or whatever that instrument was that plays like the main themes. Yeah, those guys were. We're going hard, but I I would agree with you. It's not a soundtrack that I'm like listening to when I'm like doing chores around the house or working out or, or driving. It's, it's just not, it's, it's background music and I think it serves its purpose. It's not, not out of place. It's perfectly designed for the levels that it's in. To me, I felt like the sound direction was a lot better than the music and the sounds were actually more what I remember more from the game than the music. I think the sounds are more iconic than the music definitely like you know i feel like crash's spin is pretty recognizable by anybody that plays video games uh like the ricochet when he hits somebody the pitch of the boxes that goes up as you continually to j- to jump on them uh the sound like that bonus sound level when you pick up a extra life yes all that stuff was really good and i feel like all of those i could hear those sound effects anywhere and know oh yeah like that that's Crash. Similar to how you can hear Mario's jump and know, oh, yeah, that's that's Mario. That's just uh, I wouldn't say it's as iconic as Mario, but I think they nailed all the sound effects.
0: No, I agree. I I have the same feeling and I spent a lot of time away from Crash and I can still tell you what Crash's spin is. Like Crash's spin is Crash's spin and those annoying box sounds as you're regretting (laughs) life as you're trying to destroy all these boxes. They are, you know, it's, it's Crash Bandicoot. There's there's no doubt like even the dynamite sounds that count the countdown that they have for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's it's crash, man. There's no right, way around it. Getting those wampa fruit, fruits, too. That feels really good. The, like that. Yes. Or whatever that sound is. I'm sure that sounded terrible. Yes. <laughs> you did.
1: You
0: did perfectly. Oh, wait, no, that was. Exi- <laughs> yes. I can't, that was
2: spot, I can't do it again. I can't do it again. Yeah, that, <laughs>
0: that was it. Like, i like, fuck.
2: That was something I always like really remember. Definitely not jamming out to the soundtrack, but I will. uh, No, I'd rather jam out to the the sounds. (laughs) All right. So we got some we got
0: some additional information on this game before we wrap this up and give our final thoughts. There's a lot, a lot, lot, so much here. We've we've kind of talked about a lot of it, but this game is so well documented in terms of uh, where it went from soup to nuts that. We're not going to cover all of it. I'm just going to say that right now, but we're going to cover some of it. So Shane, how about you give a couple of a a couple of a miscellaneous facts about Crash Bandicoot that you found during our research for this episode?
1: Sure. You already, you already covered in the brief history, the thing about them internally referring to it as Sonic's ass game. So we got that covered. Hooray, you know, didn't want to let that one go. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I actually found interesting was just some of the regional changes uh, to it. So in the Japanese release, There were a couple of things that they altered one it has a lower difficulty. So I kind of feel like I probably wanted to play that version instead. Also, they made some alterations to that ending animation. um, When you finish a level and you inevitably did not get all of the boxes and they just crash on top of your head, no pun intended, um, to kind of visually actually punish you for not finding every single crate. Evidently, they had some test groups over there in Japan with some kids And a lot of the kids were like actually really disturbed by Crash getting smashed on the head for their failures. So uh, they altered that, which I think was probably a a solid change in retrospect. (laughs) Yes. And uh, the last thing was they also removed the explosion death animation. So like if you get, you know, blown up by the TNT, you basically just have like two a pair of eyeballs and like your shoes and like a smoking crater, you know, they got rid of that. Because apparently and I did not do my due diligence. I will get out there and say it right now, but I kind of want to look and I'm sure somebody will listening to this. But uh, evidently, there was a serial killer on the loose at that same exact time (laughs) that had a very similar M.O. to how he killed people. Um, So apparently that's why they (laughs) removed it from Crash Bandicoot of all the crazy reasons to do that. Wow. Yeah. So. Fun, in air quotes, fact, I guess, about that.
0: Race, serial killers. Uh One of the things I wanted to bring up was at the 1996 E3 show. And I think because of this, you can kind of see why Naughty Dog went the way they did. Universal wanted to take complete credit mm. for Crash Bandicoot when they presented it because they knew they had a hit on their hands. There's, You could look at this game and you could be like, OK, we're going to... Even if it sucks, people are going to come over to this like it's better than Bubsy. That's not hard. (laughs) It's a low bar, (laughs) very low bar. So they made this booth that just said, yes, is Crash Bandicoot by Universal Interactive. And they told they told the creators of Naughty Dog not even to show up. They told them that they weren't needed and they were going to present everything to the point that Naughty Dog actually had to create flyers saying that they made the game and that pissed off the owner of Universal Interactive. So when you consider, like a lot of people ask why, you know, Naughty Dog went on to make different series with Jack and Daxter and, you know, the last of us, and they left crash behind. And why, why would they leave behind this creation that essentially made, made their mark on the world? Because way of the warrior was an absolute trash game, dumpster fire <laughs> game on the three do And they were doing that. And they came out and they made crash bandicoot, which is considerably better. Uh, it's because universal treated them like shit. <laughs> so if you want to keep talented developers, major publishers, maybe you shouldn't treat them like shit. What? Just a word of advice. I know. Wild concept. Wow. That's really relevant today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wild concept. <laughs> I mean, if you're a bad publisher, it's just like being a uh, a, a tick of sorts mm. that's just stuck and buried and your developers and just irritating them. The only way you can remove ticks is with fire. <laughs> just, just co-tick <laughs> with fire. Wow, just get rid you of went, it. You that was a that was
1: a long journey <laughs> to get to that one. That was but very <laughs> subtle. <laughs> you it got was there. Awful.
2: And I'm sorry. And i <laughs> 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 No, I don't think anybody would notice it. It'd be fine. Fuck you, Bobby Kotick.
1: <laughs> did, did you hear? Did you hear that, Bobby?
2: <laughs> uh we'll
0: be getting a cease and desist. Hey, look, if you pay me a million dollars, I'll I'll apologize.
2: (laughs) Just (laughs) call me. Not like he doesn't have it now.
1: He never (laughs) had it before, yeah.
2: (laughs) I just wanted to ask one thing. Because you brought up a thing about the kids in Japan being disturbed by the boxes. Yeah. It It was was shortly after this, too, that there was the Pokemon story about the kids listening to the Lavender Town music and, like, killing themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Yep. are Were kids in Japan okay at this time? I feel like that's the question people should probably be asking. Are they okay now? Mm. Are any of us okay now?
0: Ugh. This sounds like a radioactive discussion. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. <laughs> it's not very explosive.
1: <laughs> not like those TNT crates. Am I right? Uh, yeah. Trying to bring that back around, please. You also
2: tied in the true crime.
1: Hey, there you go. The serial killer, so there you go and there it is yeah full circle <laughs> there you go the the japanese serial killer was blowing people up we we made it we eventually mm-hmm. turned this into a true crime podcast congratulations everybody
2: yes you have to do a follow-up episode
1: uh Woo. so i suppose <laughs> at any rate i think that probably brings our discussion of crash bandicoot to a close uh so before we start the, our little outro or everything we need to talk about whether or not we even feel like this thing still holds up today. I feel like I know the answer, but uh, you know what? Let's let's start with Chris, because we always like to have our guests have the the final say on this. So, Chris, Mm. does crash still hold up?
0: (sighs) Okay, I'm not going to talk about credit where credit is due, because that's that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about should you play this game today? Right. And one of the things that I was thinking about when playing this game again, when I first booted it up and I was going through the game, is comparing it to other platformers because i think that's appropriate i don't want to compare it to other 3d platformers necessarily i mean you 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 do kind of sort of have to but at the at the same time just platforms in general so when i look at a game like super mario world on the super nintendo uh which which kind of redefined 2d platforming from super mario brothers 3 which redefined it which read you know going back from the mario franchise you look at how they they treated rewards and how they did things. And I think you you hit this nail on the head earlier when you said the Japanese kids were disturbed by having Crash have a bunch of boxes fall on his head when he missed it. So in Mario, you have secrets. Secrets do exist. There are objectives that you can get and they're well hidden. They're they're really, very well designed through expert level design. The level design in Crash Bandicoot is not an expert level design. So when you get through the level and you're thinking, wow, I, I did this in one life, I did this in one clear, huh, I am so proud of myself. And the game tells you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's essentially, it's extremely discouraging. It's telling you that you suck, even though you're, you're still having a good time. And that's why I'm saying, if you try to go through this game and complete it and, and do the best you can, there is a reward if you're a sadist. <laughs> then you, you can do that because there is an advantage. There, there is something there for you. But if you're not like most game players and you just want to play this game, there are moments where this gets into a very good natural flow where if you don't care about Crash getting bashed over the head with a bunch of boxes or you just die enough through the level that you don't even see that because that's what happens and you're just interested in a good platformer that still has enough elements from the 8- and 16-bit era, everything's here. I think one of the things with Crash Bandicoot that kind of distorts how a lot of people feel about it is they see the graphics, they see the presentation, and they associate it with more of a modern game because it is so well presented. However, it is made in 1996. It has the same difficulty level that you would get from a Donkey Kong Country or a Super Ghouls and Ghosts or a lot of other platformers. And when you take that into consideration, delivers on its merits so i am going to say that this game barely holds up because it is not perfect but it is within the realm of an old school platformer that lives up to the standards of what platformers were in 1996 and if you say i want to play a game from this era crash bandicoot delivers and i think you can have a fun time with this game as long as you don't try to 100% it. Now, if you do, if you are, don't. It doesn't hold up. But if if you just want to play it, yes, it does hold up. Shane. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I think you and I are mostly in agreement on this one. Sometimes we have very disparate opinions about things, and mostly that's just because one of us has a very personal attachment to it that we don't want to let go. Absolutely. But in this particular <laughs> case. Uh, I I think I kind of have to tend to agree, really. The only thing that I will say, though, is it's mm, it's it's a rough one to just blanket say, like, yeah, you should check it out. I think the the real detractors for me that that stand out the most are the the trial and error aspects of the gameplay, because it doesn't really matter how many lives the devs throw at you. It's still frustrating. It's just it feels bad. And some of the less than ideal level design is also going to leave you frustrated, especially coming at it with, you know, more modern sensibilities and the save system is hot steaming garbage. So with all that said, is it something that I think you should experience, especially if you're, you know, somebody who likes retro games or wants to sort of experience what these were like then? Uh, Yes, but either just go i would just try out the insane trilogy or if you're gonna do the og because as we spent a lot of time talking about the the graphics are actually still really good especially for 1996 and being polygonal that's totally valid i would maybe not play it on original hardware if you don't want to have a potentially bad time I enjoyed my time with this game much more when I had more control over when I could save. Let's just let's just say that. So that would be my caveat that, that I think I would throw in there for it. But uh, Eric, how, how do you feel about this one?
2: Well, for me personally, th- so this, like I said, was my 3D platforming introduction. I didn't play Mario 64 until much later. So when I think of the transition from kind of starting the transition from 2D to 3D crashes, what I think of. hmm. If I'm recommending, if if somebody's asking me about this era of games and, you know, they're interested in Crash, and if I could only recommend them one, uh, I certainly would not recommend them Crash one, I would say. Crash Warped is probably uh, the best of all those titles. It fixes so many things that the first and second ones do wrong. It's a a functioning save system where you can save after (laughs) every single level, which is huge. I, I think... If you're really interested in, like, the history and stuff and want to experience that era, I, I would say to just go back and play it just to experience it. Um, you know, if-, if you're a younger person stumbling upon this, I would say that probably, yeah, the Insane Trilogy is probably your-, your best bet to experience that. Because despite the fact that it has a shiny new coat of paint, at least this is the way I felt about it, um, it- it's a fairly faithful recreation of the first game. Just kind of tightened up. The hitboxes are tightened up a little bit. The jumping's tightened up a little bit. Uh, The camera is not as unforgiving, but it can still have those difficult moments. So I would say a very, 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 very light yes. Uh, If you don't care about continuity, just skip one and two and just play Crash Warped because I think that's the definitive crash experience. But a very light yes. Just probably, like you guys said, not on original hardware because the saving sucks.
1: All right. Well, there you have it a lukewarm recommendation for crash bandicoot all around (laughs) now that's that's probably underserving it but you know you guys heard so make your own uh, make your own judgment calls on that one um if actually you know honestly if for nothing else at least for me this experience has made me want to go and try the other crash games because i have heard uh before and now from both of you that they are much better experiences and so you know what i think that's a positive thing that, that came out of this So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. But at any rate, before we start talking about our little spiel, um, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It has been a pleasure. We were so
2: happy to have you here. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, Like I said, I don't normally, uh, my gaming experience tends to be a little bit more modern. So I I was a little bit intimidated coming on because you guys just have so much knowledge about the retro space. I've, I've learned so much just from listening to you guys. Oh, thank you. I hope I was able to come on and uh, do the show justice and talk about uh, a character that did um, mean a lot to dude. me. And and Chris kind of intimidated me and said, "We'll see if your childhood survives." And he, and he wasn't as mean <laughs> as, as he uh, he wasn't as mean as he made it sound like he was gonna be. So, <laughs> well, it was hey, dude,
0: it was so great having you on here, and you did fantastic, man. You you definitely what standard we said anyway, but you lived up to it, whatever that standard might oh be. <laughs> Dude, you killed it. Uh, thank you so much for being on our show and we would love to have you back anytime, anytime. If you crash yeah. warped. Let me know. I'll come back for crash two or crash warp. There you go. There it is. And, and speaking of
1: shows, uh, Eric, I've, I've heard that you have one of those. Would you like to tell the fine people where they
2: can find you out on, out on the internet? Is that what they're classifying it as? Is it a show? Uh, Must have missed that one. Um, But yeah, (laughs) my name is Eric. I run uh, the SideQuesting podcast with my co-host, Tom. Uh, We're currently on a little bit of a break just because life's gotten a little crazy. But you can find us pretty much anywhere you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, all those good ones. Uh, And if I'm not somewhere you want to listen to, just let me know if you want to listen on the Russian Gulag podcast network. I'll put it there, too. Uh, I don't know if that actually (laughs) exists, but and as far as socials, I'm on Twitter at the One True Sire. Uh, my co-host Tom is on at RedRival26, and he's also on Twitch at RedRival26, and he'll stream just about anything and everything. But uh, he has a really, really strong affinity for JRPGs, so definitely go Ooh. check him out. And then uh, Instagram, Sidequesting Podcast, and that's where you'll find me interacting the most and shouting people out. And uh, just say hi and come talk to me, and uh, I'll talk to you about Final Fantasy Nine or Kingdom Hearts. Oh, all day, so. <laughs> Ooh, there you go, Shane. Yeah.
0: There you go. Mm. <laughs> you can have weird conversations about things that no one else understands. It's it's deep, Chris. You wouldn't understand. Literally, the only two games I've ever I know. played.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Awesome. Well, as, as far as we're concerned, if you're listening to this, then I suppose that means you've found us. So hello. If you're new, then welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, and if you're a repeat listener, then we are doubly glad that you've decided to come back. So uh, if you'd like to engage with the show uh, outside of merely just absorbing it through your ear holes, then you can do that. We make it possible. And also we make it simple with this fantastic thing that all the kids are doing. Probably not because we're old as fuck but it's called Linktree. So you should go check that out. Uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash retro hangover. And it gives you this fantastic little menu of buttons. So you can check out everything we got right from there. You want to go check out our socials. You got it. You want to come join our public discord with our fantastic community. We've got that too. You want to check out our merch store or become a patron. If you're that kind of crazy person, then, you know, knock yourself out. We're not going to stop you. Uh, Or you could check out the YouTube channel where we upload video versions of all these episodes as well as our VODs from our Twitch streams. Speaking of which, Chris, tell the fine people about Twitch.
0: Twitch.tv slash Retro Hangover. If you go to that site on Sunday, Sunday, Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, you may be able to find a streaming experience that you've never had before unless you've been there before. (laughs) And you can see us playing a game of some sort while our amazing community joins us and they have phenomenal discussions about what's ever going on. Uh, I'm probably playing lunar because that game takes forever. And Shane is probably saying, playing something much more relevant and interesting, but you can join us there and we will have a good time and good conversations at twitch.tv slash retro hangover on Sundays at 9. PM. Eastern time. Back to you Shane. Beautiful. All right. Well,
1: folks, with all of that being said, until next time,
0: play with your wet ton thick joysticks.
1: Shane here with a quick message. You know, the one rule Chris and I have always gone by regarding advertisements is this. It has to be something we use and can personally vouch for. If you know me, you know I love coffee, and Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space, or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part? No added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four-ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you, or jump in head first with full 12-ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.
2: All right. (laughs) Mm. I was not expecting the outro.